Hello, this is Pixelated Playgrounds, a monthly gaming book club podcast discussing the art and craft of video games. I'm Brian Skersha. And I'm Clint Jones. And today we're talking about Ghost of Tsushima, uh, developed by Sucker Punch and published by Sony Interactive Entertainment. It was released for PS4 in July of 2020. So I picked this game up over the summer, I think it was in August, um, just because I needed a big open world game to sink my teeth into because we were in month... Uh, six or five or something like that of quarantine time lost all meaning and i just needed something to escape into a new location Uh, hot off the heels of persona 5 why not stick with japan i said to myself (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah i was kind of the same boat obviously we've all been stuck indoors forever and this was uh I think anything Sony Interactive puts out is always a big win in my book. So people, I was a little concerned because uh, some of the critics didn't enjoy this a ton, it seemed, but I really loved it. Um, I spent way too much time playing this. So I I played through most of the game and then quit for some reason. I don't know. There's kids in the house. I don't know what happened. (laughs) Ended up coming back to it, completing it, platinuming it, and then we put a whole bunch of time into the co-op too. You made a really good point about the, at least the um, Western critics being really uh, lukewarm on this game. And I think to me, this is like very indicative of burnout for them specifically on this type of game. You and I haven't played every single one of these that's come out in the last decade. They have. Yeah, I'm actually uh, very, uh, I I hold back on a lot of these kinds of games. And when we say these kinds of games, I know what I think you're talking about. to me, this feels very much in the vein of like an Assassin's Creed or an Ubisoft kind of game. Yeah, it's an Ubisoft tower climber minus the towers climbed. Um, yeah. Yes. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure we'll talk about this plenty, but uh, this, uh, I think in a lot of ways, this takes that genre, it actually takes a lot of what Assassin's Creed promised to be and never was, and and uh, kind of schooled Ubisoft on their own game, which is kind of kind of cool. To see, but yeah, I I think generally speaking, these got a lot of a lot of eights, eight out of tens. This is a solid nine, nine and a half out of ten for me. Actually, personal enjoyment, the dollars to donuts. Like I, what paid sixty bucks for this game and put in a hundred hours. I think uh, <laughs> I think that's a that, that's a glaring a Skyrim for level. Me. Ac- yeah, yeah, a Skyrim level accomplishment with that hour count. But yeah, yeah you know, you're you're right. I mean, to to me, this was like. And we'll probably get into this as we go on, but this is the apex of like the form of the, you know, this generation of Ubisoft game. And um, I, I'm really glad it was made as sort of like the swan song to the PS4, right? This is the last thing by SIE. Um, was an it? open world game in the st- pretty much. I think it's the last SIE thing that released for PS4 before PS5 came out. Let's say it was uh, that and The Last of Us were like the last two big things that came mm-hmm. out. Yeah, so you know, to me, this this is them saying like we've perfected this generation style of game, um, but yeah, I guess maybe we should talk a little bit about like how this game came to be, and uh, this is as as we said, Sucker Punch, um, after completing you know Infamous uh, Last Light, which was their their previous game, decided they wanted to make a more like player choice driven game, and uh, as a result. According to the director, Nate Fox, they distilled the game's numerous internal pitches down to, we want to let the player become a samurai. Uh, you know, that's their their huge conceptualization centerpiece for this. And everything that comes into this game is pretty much a branch off of let the player be a badass samurai. Yeah. And uh, I got to be honest, a lot of samurai games, and I don't know why it turns out to be this way, but they're usually like 
hyper difficult. I'm thinking like uh, Ninja Gaiden, Sekiro. Yeah, like I feel like every game where you're a samurai, yeah, you get to be super badass, but it's also really not accessible for the average person. Like mm. I never beat a Ninja Gaiden game. In fact, embarrassingly, Ninja Gaiden is the only game that's ever gotten me to throw a controller at the wall. <laughs> uh, those Xbox 360 controllers are super uh, are super tough. Turns out, uh, it 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 won. The wall did not. Um, yeah. <laughs> No, that, that, was, that was a beast of a controller, so um, you're lucky you didn't, uh, I don't know, maybe you lost a security deposit on that or something. I did. That was college. <laughs> yeah, that was a long time ago. I've grown as a person since then, but either way. Um, you know, you're not throwing controllers anymore because you know who's patching that drywall. And I know who's paying for the controller. <laughs> Those things are not cheap. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. But yeah, this was an accessible samurai game, and it was it was good. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it myself, and uh, we're going to go through a lot of the reasons of why that is, but uh, right off the top, I think an interesting factoid about this is this is um, the first, or sorry, only the third Western game to get a 40 out of 40 from Famitsu, the uh, game's uh, media outlet in Japan, which I thought was an interesting thing, considering Japan is the subject matter. Um I don't know if they're like playing uh, favorites in terms of like the cultural representation, but I certainly think it's deserving. And I think that speaks to how well they were able to, you know, do with the the cultural representation itself. Gotcha. Do you know what the other two were out of curiosity? I don't. I, uh, I should look that up and maybe I can drop it in the show notes, that list or something like that. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I can see this uh, not playing as well over here but honestly i enjoyed it a lot obviously you've been way on the uh the japan wagon <laughs> yeah i don't, I don't even know what i i would have called it the weeb wagon, wagon but yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah sure yeah it's it's definitely a game that uh does its best to represent that uh that place and culture as best as it can and you know i, I know they hired like numerous consultants to make sure they were getting as much as they can right i know there's people that uh or there are things that um people have taken issue with in terms of like technologies represented out of time and things like that. But, you know, by and large, I think they're more interested in like the spirit of the the endeavor here. And uh, on that regard, I think they've done a, a really great job. Um, they're bringing to life the work of um, Kurosawa, the famous samurai film director. And that's, that's kind of their main mission, right? They're not trying to be a historical document. Right. Yeah, this was very reminiscent for me of, of those old samurai movies. And I know they added some, uh, I don't want to call them like film settings, but there were like color settings to make it look uh, entirely like like his style of movies too. And as cool as that was, I remember the, the people online saying, hey, this is pretty much as cool as it is that they included this, don't ever do this. Because that turns it into like a, a black and white movie. And while it's cool stylistically, uh, one of the most amazing things about this game is its visuals and its beautiful colors and its just intense scenery so making this game black and white if you're playing this for the first time don't do it yeah <laughs> second second playthrough fine uh but holy shit you're gonna miss some of the most uh, be- beautiful scenes i've ever seen in a video game ever i agree this game is truly like uh, a visual and like stylistic accomplishment but just to just to you know box in what you're experiencing real quick let me give a quick summary of what you're actually doing in this game and then we can go into more on the the world building and the art and the the theme your story follows jin sakai a samurai who basically is um uh obligated to protect tsushima island during the first mongol invasion of japan so this is a conflict where the gigantic mongolian empire is invading 
uh, Japan via Tsushima. They're sort of the first line of defense uh, before they hit the mainland, and they're caught unawares. And uh, they are, uh, by and large, slaughtered on uh, the beaches of Tsushima. Uh, Jin's entire family, his entire way of life is basically destroyed. As the last standing samurai, he's basically tasked with defending his homeland by any means necessary. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And, and, and what, what that all turns out to be is, you know, the, the samurai is very much a honor and tradition, and it's very much facing your enemy head on with honor. But when you're the only guy left, there's not much chance of one guy coming up against a whole army. This is basically like the Patriot. They were the British were all <laughs> mad that, you know, the, the people in the United States wouldn't stand in a line and get shot. Uh, during the Revolutionary War, instead they, you know, they took to guerrilla warfare and and got it got it done, and that's basically the same kind of uh, theming we see here, I believe. Turns out there's not much decorum standing uh, in the way when you are uh, given a decision between the throat slitter and the throat slitty. Yeah, pretty much. And and they do really make you feel like a badass when you're doing it, which which I thought was really cool. A lot of games promise to let you do two different kinds of play styles, but there's really only one way to play, uh, Stealth Archer. Uh, but <laughs> this game, actually, it, I think it feels good to play either way, whether you choose to do it head-on or, or kind of from the shadows. It does. It definitely does feel that way. I mean, everyone's going to get a rush the first time they do their, their first stealth kill, and then they'll get the flashback where they get their uncle berating them for doing it, which <laughs> is uh, <laughs> a little anachronistic, but I, I get it. It's like hitting you over the head with the theme of the game, and I, you know, I'm not going to fault them for that. They're trying to give a very specific message on the upbringing of the central character Jin, and, you know, it comes across. It might be like a weird sort of heavy-handed message, but it's a message. Yeah. So, as you were talking about, the uh, the game is set in just the most gorgeous uh, island, open world, that I think has ever been assembled for a game of this type. Um, as you were saying, Clint, there's colors everywhere, there's a ton of different biomes, there's, uh, to my mind, sort of a Breath of the Wild influence here, where they have a very streamlined UI, and in a masterstroke, you are not following like dots or icons on the screen. You are following the wind. As if the island itself is pushing you towards success. The, the world wills that, that you defeat the Mongol horde. Now go forth and get it done. Yeah, without a single UI marker on the screen anywhere. And I think that's, I think, the masterstroke of this. And this is where, uh, honestly, Sucker Punch just kicked the shit out of Ubisoft at their own game. In, in, in a uh, Assassin's Creed game, there's, uh, what, a billion side quests going on, and there's all these little markers up on your screen, and no matter how beautiful they made that world, and I don't think they've ever made one as pretty as what uh, they put forth for Ghost of Tsushima, uh, it's just, you're, you're looking at a bunch of markers and a bunch of gauges. Not a single one, uh, pretty much, in Ghost of Tsushima. And even, like, the your health bar and all that stuff, it all disappears when you're not in combat, so you just have nothing to look at but the world that they put in front of you which is amazing. Which is gorgeous. Yeah, like you said, it's full of color. Um, and, it, you know, to me, this is like the huge binary between like the clipboard of fun method of like going on a vacation that Ubisoft represented. Like if I'm thinking of this game as a journey to a new place, um, if I'm going on a vacation to a place I've never been before, it's a difference between having a clipboard for, you know, a list of things to do and see, or just going out and discovering it and trying to see what sort of interesting things I stumble upon. And in 
this game or in, in video games at least, I prefer the latter, right? I don't want someone to be saying, here's all the cool things you can do. Go see this, that, and the other thing, and you're probably going to be one of 500 people at this particular museum exhibit or whatever. I want to get the experience that only I get where, you know, I stumble into a, a tapas bar or whatever and have a one-of-a-kind experience that is just, you know, me stumbling into a cool thing. And this game does that in video game form, which I think is really neat. They do, although they still manage to give you a, I'm going to call it a bespoke experience here too. Yep. But they make you feel like you just happened upon it. And it's from these like very slight visual cues that you wouldn't even think of. Again, so when you're looking uh, for a quest, all you do is follow the wind. You got to look which way, you know, the grass is, is blowing and you're like, oh, I need to go in that direction. But also like uh, areas of interest at night, you'll notice that there's just some fireflies that seem mm-hmm. just a little more concentrated around this one area. And while you don't really think about it, you it draws your attention over there. And sure enough, that's an area. Or these yellow birds will float by and sing a song. And if you follow them, it'll take you someplace, another thing of interest. Or if you look in the you know on the horizon, you might see a billowing cloud of smoke. And of course, that's going to be an enemy encampment. Like, they mm-hmm. have ways of showing you where this stuff is without just handing you a bunch of quest markers. Yeah, it's the first game that I can think of where if you really want to platinum things you're, and not use a guide, your best option is really just to like get up to a high point and look at the, the map uh, in a broad way. Correct. It's as if, again, they're using Ubisoft's thing without doing their thing. Uh, there are not a bunch of, you don't run around getting on towers and fake looking at things so they can fill it out on your map. You're literally just climbing to the top of a beautiful mountain looking out and be like, ooh. I see something on the horizon. I want to see what that. I want to see what that is, and it it doesn't get boring, and that doesn't. It doesn't overwhelm you. Yeah, the player. Like if I don't know about you, but when I first see like all of those checklist of things appear when I first sink with a tower in a an Assassin's Creed game, I'm like, well, I'm not doing nine out of ten of those, um, and then that just sort of deflates you on like ninety percent of the game's content, right? And in this game, they used uh, an older school method of content discovery, which is the fog of war mechanic, right? You're not going to a place and unveiling a large chunk of the map. You are unveiling it as you travel. So the fog of war is there. You unlock it much in the way of Heroes 3, uh, which uh, we've done a podcast on. As you travel about the land, you have a radius of things around you, which will pop into view as you see them. And I don't know why this went away. This is a much better way to discover things than the tower mechanic that is in Ubisoft games. And honestly, it's a huge lesson I hope that designers take from this game's open world. Yeah, you're right. There isn't that, uh, oh crap, I've got 25 new things I gotta do. I gotta hurry up and do those things. And again, that ruins the game. Like you're not, instead of enjoying the character or your discovery of the place that you're in, you're like, oh shit, I have to do these. It almost I have feels, all these things I got to do. Yeah. yeah. It's like chores before you move on to the next thing. Cause you're like, by the time I get to the next thing, that, that'll be 25 more things. And then I'll have 50 and then I will never get to them. Like, so you feel like you have to do it. I'm OCD. Uh, no, no surprise. <laughs> so, yeah. It, it becomes rote and it becomes a chore and it is not yep. fun. And this made it natural and fun. And you discover the world as you go. And if you find something and you're like, I don't feel like dealing with that right now. Hmm. Who cares? You just move on. Or if you decide you're ready to move on and the whole world isn't discovered, you don't even know what you're missing out on. So no harm, no foul. Yeah, you'll find it later if you want to. Yeah, and it, you know, to the point I was making earlier about um, the discoverability, like 
it, you can sort of see past the veil here and see how they're doing things. And, you know, if you're savvy enough with this type of game, you can kind of see that there's going to be a certain number of things per certain landmass. And they do still do the thing where they gate landmasses one after another after another. But it's not immediately apparent. And I think the obfuscation of what's going on with the map and the unlockables and what's coming, for lack of a better word, uh, is enough for me, at least. And I don't know if it's going to be enough for everyone. It's not going to be enough for maybe like the most savvy of game critics, but it was definitely enough to keep me engaged and not like thinking down the path of all the hundreds of encampments I'm going to have to settle in and rather thinking more along the lines of, huh, that's a cool encampment. I'm going to go take that over. Yeah, and I think they did a really good job too of, again, if you're going to gate things off, it has to feel natural for some reason. And it felt very natural in this game too. So there's three distinct areas, obviously three acts of a game, three distinct areas. And the way this worked is you're constantly pushing back the Mongol invasion. And as uh, there are three different areas of this map, there are three different strongholds that basically are choke points um, that hold off you know, entry to this next part of the island, I guess. And slowly you're pushing the Mongols out of those and allowing yourself further access in and, and pushing them further out. So that, that felt natural to the storytelling it felt natural to the world so it never felt uh i don't know punitive or like it never felt like gamey yeah <laughs> this isn't like pokemon where there's a, a shrub in your way and you have to learn slash like you wouldn't have just gone around the fucking bush and the like, only way to get that hm is to kill this gym leader right so like yeah. yeah there's there's no like very obvious lock and keys like that though again like if you know what's coming you know that the world, the, the main quests are what's going to bring you along that pathway. But yeah, to your point, it's a, it's a brilliant, like very standard act three structure, but it's unrolled in a very naturalistic way. Uh, you open the game in media res where you're on the beach in a huge battle. And that sets the stage for the whole rest of the game. You learn about all the noble families that you'll be interacting with, or at least those that survive. Um, you learn um, about, you know, your, clan's legacy and your uncle uh, lord shimura and uh, some of the other clans that are present as well uh, there's like enough backstory present right in that opening scene that sets the stage for the entire rest of the game and then you know as you make your way to each story mission that leads you up to you know basically you're, you're progressing from south to north throughout the the course of the game and it's thematically appropriate right like things get harder and colder and fiercer as you you move from south to north I also like just the style of gameplay too. Like it was very good at giving you a little piece of everything. So like we just talked about, you're almost doing like a D-Day style invasion at the beginning. Like everybody, everybody is coming to bear. Every samurai on Tsushima is coming to face the Mongols, you know, to their own detriment. Um, but massive battle at the beginning. And then you've got these quiet introspective quests where you're like learning more about a character and, and his connection to either his past or, or, or to other people like or you'll get these cool stealth missions where you're almost like playing like a hitman style game like it keeps it very fresh the whole way through and it keeps bouncing back and forth and the themes were very thought very thoughtful too like I really like the hot springs like every time you get in a hot spring which is is their method of increasing your health it gives you a choice of something to reflect on like your relationship with uh, your family or mm, 
the food you like. And, and you get to pick, and then he'll have, like, an introspective moment, but you feel like you had enough choice in that that it's, like, part of your story. I don't know. It's... I, I agree. Uh, it's funny to me that, like, the, the hot springs were, like, one way to increase your max health, and the other way, the way more effective way, is to just level up through combat. Yeah. And I keep thinking to myself, like, when, I, when I'm thinking, like, all right, I'm given a choice between thinking about the taste of sake or my mom... <laughs> uh, all right, let's 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 choose sake. That's going to be interesting. And then I get this tiny little health increase. I'm like, Fuck! I should have thought about my mom. <laughs> but <laughs> it was cool though. It, it made you feel more connected to the character by just like he's just having little tiny reflections. The other really cool thing that I really loved, and, and again, if you're going to do collectibles in a game, do something meaningful. Like again, did it really mean a whole lot that I went and did all these hot springs? If I did. 20 of them, yes, but singularly, no. But every time you went, you feel like you got a little more connected to Jin. But the haiku, that was cool. So a lot of games would be like, hey, collect these 30 hats. And I'd be like, fuck that, I'm not doing that. So basically, every time you go to these haiku spots, they give you a different headband. And on its own, dumb. <laughs> like, I'm, yeah. not, I'm not going to do that 30 not times. super useful. <laughs> right, but the, in practice, the way this plays out in the game is you go to a place that is, as always, just exceptionally gorgeous, like a waterfall or a cliff overlooking the ocean, and then you get to write your own haiku. They give you, there's three different sections to every haiku, uh, and as you look at the scenery, there's three different choices uh, in, in each area. So I think, what, that's 27 options every, t- every time. So it's, it's very personal the way you choose to write it out. And then he, yeah. like, recites it to beautiful music. And a little, yeah, a, a gorgeous, like, hi, uh, flute sort of hymn. It's it's nice. It's uh, I agree that it's a cool moment. The And some of the, like, a couple of the haikus are, you know, actually pretty good and affecting, and all the pieces go well together. I think there's an argument to be made here that the haiku thing is, like, one of the things, like, culturally that they kind of biffed. Uh, haikus didn't exist at the time that they're claiming to have <laughs> written this game for, but you know, it, it's, it, it gets into pedantry, right? Like to, to worry about that shit. That might be true, but it is probably the best, uh, collectible or, or uh, whatever it's you a, want to call it's a it. Uni- it's a very unique one. We'll yep. Put it that way. And the very cool thing is, I don't know if you saw this, but every time you, uh, select that item, um, that headband in the future, the haiku the you, there. Yeah, the yeah. haiku that you wrote is 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 right there forever for the whole game, which I thought was really cool. I, I do like that. I love everything about this haiku thing, um, except except the historical sort of anachronism there. And, you know, this to me is like the primary reason why setting a game in a real place in time or claiming to do so is so difficult, right? Like they could have chosen a form of poetry that was popular in you know, the 13th century of Japan or whatever, but no one is going to know what it was. Yeah, we, <laughs> so, we've all heard of haikus. So they did haiku. Yeah, you, you learn about haikus in sixth grade English class, so you're going to use haikus. So I think, like, all, the whole argument of, like, this was a, a dumb and uh, historically or culturally inaccurate thing to use, it doesn't really ring, like, very genuine to me because, like, one the the people who are ar- arguably the gatekeepers of Japanese game culture Famitsu gave it a 40 out of 40 so clearly it didn't like hit them too hard and two like what's going to actually resonate more with the vast majority of your player base choosing something more baroque for the sake of authenticity or choosing something that you know will resonate and you know actually convey the culture for sure yeah this is <laughs> 
again, this is not a, a nonfiction book. They had to take some liberties, and honestly, yeah. it, it's not like yeah. it's not like they they did something culturally insensitive. They highlighted something beautiful about Japanese culture. I'm sorry, it was a hundred years before the time that they. Right. Who cares? Yeah, this is a game. This is supposed <laughs> to be fun, and it was. And I actually thought this was one of the better. Again, if you're going to do collectibles or whatever in video games. If you have to do something 30 times in a game, it better mean something. And this was, a, yeah. well, I thought, very meaningful. Yeah, you give me a gorgeous graphical touchstone, a uh, opportunity to exercise my creative freedom, and then on top of that, I get a cool, um, you know, aesthetic customizable for my character. Um, that's a win-win-win, um, as Michael Scott would say. <laughs> yep, yeah. uh, but not on Netflix anymore because it's uh, January 2021. That's right. He's only saying that on, uh, I guess, I don't know, Peacock. Is that where you went? For the next that? three days until that doesn't exist anymore <laughs> and it's back on Netflix. That's correct. Yeah. All right. Dating this podcast immediately. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> People right. are like, what the hell is Peacock? Yeah, no one knows. <laughs> Let's talk a bit about um, the, maybe the, the step-to-step action of what actually we are doing as Jin Sakai in this game. Uh, a lot of it is that exploration, the wandering around, the finding the hot springs and the, the fox dens and upgrading your um, equipment and finding supplies. But the other half of it is getting into fights with Mongols. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, and the combat in this game, again, had... Uh, two sides of the same coin. You're either up, up in the face of classic samurai, taking things head on, uh, very standard combat, and then there was the very much uh, the the ninja style. Mm-hmm. Where you're sort of more of an Assassin's Creed style, like hiding in the shadows, leaping down, taking out a guy, disappearing back into his shadows. Uh, all of a sudden, the guy across the way says, oh shit, my homie by the fire over there is dead. What do I do? <laughs> and uh, the answer is... Die. Sound the alarm. Oh. <laughs> yeah. But then, uh, oh shit, I'm dead already. I can't yeah. sound the alarm. <laughs> yeah, because he threw a smoke, a smoke bomb or a canai or, or, or whatever. Again, there's a million different ways to take on the combat in this game. And I think that they give you, what, like some 20 different weapons and items to get You get a ton with. of tools. So you get the canai, the sticky bomb, which is basically like uh, the halo plasma grenade. Yeah, uh, the sticky bomb. <laughs> that was a good uh, one. You get... Yeah, my favorite for sure. Uh, the black powder uh, to disappear and sort of momentarily stun your opponents. Wind chimes to distract them. Uh, you get a bow and arrow, two types of bow and arrow, actually. Um, and of course, uh, the Estus flask, which is basically just Jin saying, it didn't really hurt that much. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> pretty much. They call it resolve in this game. And basically it's like dual purposes as your healing item and your way to execute ultra badass attack moves yeah and i like that i like that system like uh for the record i think like the attack and defense um binary there in how you use your resolve is a really good iteration on sort of the the estus mechanic i enjoy it a lot i think it um plays out a lot better so i people were mad i'm I'm going back a bit here but used to be in video games the only way to heal was to find health packs and you'd find them throughout the level and but but people found like hey look you're not enjoying the game you're just you know scouring for health packs half the time 
So they went to Modern Warfare, where you get shot a billion times, but if you just hide <laughs> and cover for a minute, uh, your health comes back. Yeah, and that's pretty much been the thing for a while. And uh, the, uh, there's been a couple recent games uh, that have used something like this. So Sucker Punch did that with Ghost of Tsushima. Uh, Insomniac did it with Spider-Man. I think you played that too. But you could use your uh, whatever focus or whatever to heal yourself, or you could use it for better attack. And it made you th- think, like, do I want to be aggressive or defensive? And it gives you, like, multiple play styles that actually mean something. Right. The thing to point out here is that you get resolve in this game, which is the, the resource we're talking about, by attacking and killing enemies, right? So um, you can get more of your healing potions, for lack of a better word, back by going and killing more enemies. Uh, and this sort of incentivizes you to alternate back and forth between getting into fights where you're maybe using this and uh, tanking things a bit more and then disappearing back into the shadows where you can replenish that by doing some quick stealth kills. Yep. And then if you want to get real tanky, you can say, I'm not healing and then just use it to make some badass attacks too. So it like gives you like a whole bunch of options. And I think this game almost gave you too many tools. There were several things I never used, but to be honest, uh, I remember you talking about the sticky bombs after the game. I'd already beaten the game, and you're like, this was my go-to. And I'm like, I never <laughs> used that. But in all the time we played co-op, I used the shit out of that. I'm like, wait a minute, this is actually great. So a lot of games, again, they give you, let's say, 20 different ways to do something, but there's really only one or two good ways. I feel like this game gave you 20 legitimately good ways to handle things. And, and if I played again, I could play it entirely differently, and it would be fine. Yeah, yeah, and there's uh, there are skill trees associated with each of these sort of items and tactics. Um, you're you are advancing sort of using a, uh, a experience point tree and skill tree, for lack of a better term, and it it works pretty well. Like it, it seems to me, it's interesting that this game will let you branch out on all of those different paths, despite the fact that they are very clearly like asking you up front to make a choice between the the honorable samurai way and the sneaky ninja way and the real answer here is i'm just going to use it all situationally and um in a way that's a really beautiful way of the mechanics of the game speaking to one player desire two Jin's desire and three like his goal of you know actually liberating tsushima by any means necessary yeah he wants to be honorable and stick to the uh the tradition and the honor of the samurai code but ultimately he knows that that will never uh be enough and he will never be able to keep to it. I was worried at the beginning of this game, knowing some of the themes that they were going to have like a point system where like, Oh, if you use samurai, you get good points. If you use too much ninja stuff, you start getting bad points. And then, then you know, you might get a different ending. It wasn't any of that. Like you feel free to do what you want. Um, Mm -hmm. you're, you're going to have to, you're, you're, you're going to have to make the ultimate choice at the end, regardless of how you get there. Correct. And just flat out, you're not going to beat the Mongol army by running at them uh, <laughs> head on as a samurai. They tried that in literally the first five minutes of the game and it didn't work out. So, Right. You're going to have to use all the weapons at your disposal. I think it's worth looking at like how it's viable to take out even the most high level of base in this game, either by being full on guns blazing or full on stealth. And to me, this is like really easily codified in in the like highest levels of the skill tree of each of the um the areas right so like if you're stealthy you can do chain assassinations right you've seen this in um uh your 
Assassin's Creed. You've seen this in your Far Cries. Uh, you know, you land, you take out one guy, you change the one to the next, the other. But the more interesting thing about this game is it lets you go loud in a chain way too with the standoff mechanic. And this is like the coolest thing in this game, in my opinion. Um, I, I found it much more useful later on, but basically you, as you're heading up to a group of enemies, you have the option to just press a button and stand off where basically Jin will hop down and say like, send me your strongest fighters or come, come at me, bro. Cowards. <laughs> yeah. Come at me, bro. Basically. <laughs> and then, um, you do a sort of a timing mechanic where you take out one enemy, then another, then another, and then you can continue to upgrade that with upgrades of an armor. Yeah. Yeah, they, they again. They made it actually viable for you to for you to take either path. And ultimately, for me, I don't know about for you, I would switch back pretty often. Like I'd be like, I, I feel like going loud for a bit, and then I'd be like, I'm gonna I'm gonna be sneaky sneaky today. Um, but a lot of times, it would be a mix of the two all at once. Like I would, I would come at them head on, challenge a few of them, and then I would you know throw a smoke bomb, just disappear <laughs> into the night and they'd be like what the hell is going on and then I'd be over here, you know, stealth assassinating somebody and then running up to the tower and shooting somebody with a bow and then like it it felt cool to and the 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 sort of culmination of this to me is the one of the final mechanics you unlock in the game, the ghost stance, which I think is like the coup de grace of this whole thing where like regardless of how you kill enemies as long as you don't get hit um you build up a meter that allows you to enter ghost stance. And if you charge it up all the way, you basically get three uh, unblockable uh, kills, right? Like you just press uh, R3 and L3 and you enter ghost stance and uh, the world fades to black and white and everyone like freaks out and falls over and you just slaughter some shit. It's uh, very empowering. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's very God of War. I did like that mechanic too. They have this thing called fear where basically... The stuff that you're doing is so terrifying that if you do certain things, it freaks out. Like, let's say you could just run up and decapitate one of these guys and everybody around him just falls to their knees and freaks out. Mm -hmm. And you can just go up and just like stab him right on the ground like you're done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool. It it basically causes like roving vans of Mongols or excuse me, roving bands of Mongols that used to be sort of like a pain in the ass. um, Just become basically supply pinatas, um, which... Uh, it's worth mentioning there's a large sort of resource collecting aspect of this game, you know, to to upgrade your equipment, you're collecting supplies and iron and steel and linen and cloth and leather. And um, it's not as onerous as it sounds. You collect most of this during the course of play and raiding bases and doing missions. I never found myself like scouring the map for resources um, like you might in like some of the later Far Cries where like, well, if I want to upgrade my clip for my shotgun, I got to go kill this fucking badass turtle over here and i need three Um, (laughs) red mushrooms for no apparent reason right i this this fucking white shark has to go or otherwise i can't get a bigger wallet Um, (laughs) sorry endangered species i need to hold more rupees um yeah (laughs) yeah I, i i will say at the beginning of this game i was a little impatient and i found myself um unenjoyably running around trying to find all the supplies but after I like chilled the fuck out and just like this will happen as it happens, uh, it it really wasn't bad at all. Sometimes resource collecting can really suck. Um, mm-hmm. It it didn't in this game if you let it just happen with its course. Yeah, I think back to the sort of critic critiques of this game. Which hey, they're critics; they're going to critique. But one of the things they did harp on was the fact that this game did tend to like 
burn them out after like the first island because there was so much to do on each individual island and i elegantly sidestepped this by mainlining the main quest pretty much and like only doing side quests as they came to me situationally so it sounds like you and me played this game very differently correct um yeah, we both still made it through, so uh, I guess it holds appeal for both types of players. Yeah, I actually 100% agree with that. So I was, well, <laughs> this is a fault of its own success, I think. So these reviewers have to play the whole thing all the way through, and they get a couple days to do it. I was taking my sweet-ass time, and I was loving it. I love this game so much that I did everything on the first island, not because I felt like I had to, uh, but because I wanted to. I literally did every side quest, almost every collectible, pretty much everything. I was having so much fun. So by the time you get... I got through the first island. I was like worn out. I'd already put like 20 hours in. And I I ended up, again, I'm a new dad this year, so things happen. Uh, I ended up putting this <laughs> down for a while, and then I didn't come back to it. Um, huh. So I left this game alone for a couple months. So I, I played that on PS4. And then I recently was one of the very lucky few that managed to get a PS5. No thanks to any of the online retailers. Fuck you all, uh, I want to say right now. Uh, especially you, Walmart, and your uh, Oh Dear page that I saw a million times as you crashed me out. Um, I did manage to get a PlayStation 5, and I played on PS5. I picked it back up, and it is gorgeous. On I mean, it was gorgeous on PS4, but on PS5, I think it runs at 60 frames per second, and it was just smooth as butter beautiful but i i ended up finishing it out um so i i do totally understand it it does kind of burn you out if you do too much but i don't know yeah yeah i I have to ask um did you how did you find the difficulty being like a completionist because um for context i as a, a person who sort of mainlined the main quest and only did sort of whatever side quests particularly interest me along the way i found the games like uh, pivotal battles to be relatively tricky like there were some hard battles and missions for me as i made my way through the game like i'm thinking back to some of the like pivotal duels like the end of act duels that you get yourself into sure um but what did you think of that having been like fully upgraded as you went through all of the shit well obviously i only have my own experience to draw off of but as you kind of mentioned like i feel like the uh the things you get while they matter over time here and there, once you twosie, they don't make a ton of difference. It, it matters beginning to end, so I don't hmm. think it changed too much. It was difficult, and I like that. Hmm. Yeah, it's but, not an easy game. No. It, it, early on, I think it's actually harder, which is strange. It seems to get easier over time. Well, as you get... I don't... See, this is almost like a Dark Souls kind of thing. I don't think it gets that much easier. I think as you get more tools at your disposal and as you get better, uh, it becomes easier. We saw this tonight, so Brian and I played... Uh, there's an awesome new co-op mode that they put out for free that I've put almost as much time into as I put into the main game. We should talk about Legends mode at the end. Um, yeah, but, we, we, we yeah. will. <laughs> but, but anyway, I've been playing Days Gone for a couple weeks, and prior to that, I was kicking ass, and we went, we both went back, and we were both stumbling all over ourselves, uh, looking like <laughs> a bunch of fools. And, and I, I think this is a very skill-based game, and I think a lot of these open-world games just tend to be too easy, and then by the end, you're like, this is boring as, you know, like... But the 80th tower you've done and the 80th quote unquote boss, like you've done this a million times, but I felt like this remained challenging. You're absolutely right. It's a game that has its power curve and its difficulty curve. And uh, I think it's really well suited for what it was designed for. But like, this is what I was trying to interrogate with that question I asked you is like, how does it work if you are like totally internalizing that um, 
that combat system and then you're just going to the next boss which is you know it, i guess it's worth mentioning there are duels in this game which are different from standard combat and they function a lot more like dark souls boss fights or um, i guess probably more like Sekiro boss fights than any of the other combat in the game where your your focus is on timing parrying blocking moving around uh, it sort of evolves into more of like a combination between a fighting game and a dark souls game and you know to me like I was able to navigate that through like skill and dying a lot. And I was wondering if they like became more of just like, I've internalized this enough. This is trivial for me. No, they remain difficult. And I think that the main key here is that all those fights require you to take things on head on as a samurai would uh, Hmm. swords only Uh, (laughs) head on swords only. So no tricky, tricky, no, yeah, yeah, no, no no plasma grenades. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Those, I mean, those would be super easy if you did that. Um, but again, yeah. it, it illustrated, it showed a tie to his past and, and who he is. And, and again, these are like main enemies, like generals and stuff that he would do this with. People he was going to mm-hmm. give an honorable death to. But again, every fight would have been this. It would have been impossible had he acted this way with everybody. And it just like further, further cemented the fact that that's why he had to change who he was to be able to save his people. Yeah, that's a that's a perfect way to put it. And this is like kind of like the central thing the game is trying to say, right? Like he wouldn't have been able to do what he needed to do if every battle was a duel. But because he could dispose of some enemies very quickly and, you know, use that other path where he needed to, like where, you know, most of these duels take place in situations where there are a bunch of enemies around and it's you know him facing the champion as opposed to facing an entire army that is a strength right he's actually using the the samurai code to his advantage at that point yeah and these were some of the most beautiful set pieces too like i'm, I'm thinking back on a few of them but you'd be some like of the duels in the wilderness yes. those are also very very striking yeah you'd be like there was one where you're in a forest at night and there's just fireflies everywhere swirling all around you there's one where you're at like the base of this giant waterfall and there's you know uh cherry blossom leaves blowing across we didn't even talk about that we talked about visuals which was yeah there's particle effects out the ass in this game (laughs) yeah there's just constantly like leaves blowing through the wind or cherry blossoms or or uh bugs or like i don't know it just adds so much it makes other games feel dead when they don't have it. And you're like, why does this feel so good? And you're like, this feels, this world feels real and lived in. And then you play another game. Mm-hmm. You're like, all right, this feels like shit. What? <laughs> like it, it just puts all the other games to shame. Like I didn't realize what I was missing until somebody showed it to me. Now that I've seen it, I hope all these games start using stuff like that. Yep. Agreed. And it's, um, and get out your bingo cards. It's diegetically pleasing as well. Like he has a reason for squaring off with these people in the way he does, not just stabbing them in the side of the ear like he does with like half the other characters in the game. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that that also is helpful, right? Like if you're thinking to yourself, well, why didn't I just sneak up on this duelist and stab him like I did everyone else? No, no. This was a specific quest where it was saying like you have to duel these guys, otherwise like it's not, you know it it loses the meaning and that you know it might be a bit of a cop-out but to me it's at least a justified cop-out and that's better than nothing <laughs> they, they did a way better job making it a 
making the mechanic a story-driven thing than a lot of games do. But I think we should probably talk about uh, side quests too, since we're talking about missions here. Uh, I, I really liked the way they handled uh, side quests. So instead of doing, there was a lot of like trivial ones where you'd like go help this person or, you know, bandits are stealing from, from this farm, please help them out. But the majority of the main side quests all revolved around, I think four to five um, main people. And these are like, uh, disgraced samurai. Uh, Yuna, you're like sort of, she's like a sort of escaped slave. Um, there's uh, a sensei whose student has turned against him. Yep. But the cool thing I liked about this is they're throughout the game. So like... Um, you unlock them as you go. Yeah, your your story, their story evolves as you progress. Yep. And it almost plays out like a buddy cop Um movie and I hate to boil it down to that but that's kind of what it is every time you hang out with them and, and the cool thing is like we talked about these set pieces these end caps for every island or every area uh, where you go up against this giant fortress and I'm sure the story plays out the same regardless of if you did all their side quests or not but I felt like I was so in tune with these characters because I'd done all their personal side quests that when you go do these end caps they're all there with you to take on this heavy thing with you and it just made it all more meaningful and more fun like again, if you're gonna if you're gonna do side quests, make it meaningful. If you're gonna do collectibles, make it meaningful. And I feel like they every time they're like, should we do a thing? And they're like, well, will this add to the game or will this add to the story? If the answer was yes, add it. If not, chuck it. And that's what I really liked about this game. And they did this not only with the the allies that you bring to your side, Yuna, Taka, the the blacksmith, uh, Lady Masakao, the crazy murder granny, and uh Sensei Ishikawa, the the guy whose um, student turned against him, etc. But also with the antagonists, um, Ryuzo, who is like initially an ally and uh, spoiler alert, um, ends up betraying you in what I think is one of the most interesting and affecting turns of the game. This is like a childhood friend of Jin's who he you know initially recruits and then ends up having to um, destroy once he's been betrayed by him. It's a really cool sort of evolution of the the relationships, and I really enjoyed that about this game is how the relationships with the side characters, Yuna and Ryuzo in particular, evolved. Yeah, and another good thing that they did was no one was black and white. There's no, like, this is a good character, this is a bad character. Mm-hmm. Almost every character was like, this character's trying to do well, but they're severely flawed, and yeah, they fucked some stuff up, but they want to try to be better, and yeah, they don't always... Kenji! Good lord, that dude, comic <laughs> relief, classic, just douche like this, like a fuck up, yeah, yeah. But he's God, he's trying and he wants to be better, and it's kind of like the if you give people a chance to be good, they will ultimately try to be good. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's a fair way to put it. And um, it's interesting that like Jin's not always portrayed as the good guy either. Like half of the unnamed side quests for. Um, NPCs you encounter in the wilderness, Jin's portrayed as someone who's uh, noble, who's completely out of touch, right? Like he um, kills uh, this, or not kills, but chases off this person who's impersonating a samurai from a um, an encampment in one of them. And he says, hey, that guy you were with, he's not a real samurai. He was just wearing the armor. And they're like, yeah, dude, we knew. He, but he was providing us with like entertainment and uh, protection to some degree so why'd you get rid of him for us <laughs> it's just it's funny like he's not like portrayed as like this shining exemplar he's portrayed as exactly what he is which is a noble who's really good at killing people but also kind of doesn't know what's going on in the real world but he's doing his best 
and he's coming to terms with his own personal shit, trying to make things work. And I feel like that's every character in this game. Just and even Ryuzo again. Yes, he turned on you, but yes, you can also totally see why. Even the main bad guy, I can't remember which Koten Khan. Koten Khan. I always want to say Kotal Khan. That is uh, Mortal Kombat. That is <laughs> the wrong one. Um, eh, close enough. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even he, you understood where he was coming from. He feels like, I believe, if I remember the story correctly, like he's feeling undercut by all the other cons that are going out there, and he's just trying to make a name for himself. And he's like, "Hey, look." you don't have to fight me. We can work together. And everybody in Japan's like, fuck that. We're not doing this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's, he's interesting too, because he's also um, for an enemy who is like twice your size and clearly like physically imposing. He's also like, obviously very intelligent and way smarter than, than Jin. Like he is like, I know all of the politics of every village in your entire country. And that's why I was able to completely flip the tables on you when you um, tried to make that stand at, um, you know, the beach and, uh, now I own your whole country. And Jin is basically this sort of magical figure who's like slowly, but surely fighting a guerrilla war to take it back. But Koten Khan is formidable. Like that never stopped being true, even up until the very last battle. Yeah. And I liked, you're, you're right. I liked how they didn't just make him a big dumb brute. He was very smart and, uh, flat out. He knew how the samurai would act because they're bound by a code of honor and he used it against them. And he's like, he knew exactly how to deal with him from day one. Yeah, that was immediately apparent in the first scene of the game where he's like, send out your best warrior. And instead of dueling him, he douses him in oil and tosses a torch at him and he burns to death. He's like, now what? <laughs> now what? <laughs> it's pretty, pretty great. Pretty great. Um, I mean, great and terrible, but you know. It was an excellent villain. We'll say that. All, all, all the characters were good. All the characters were meaningful. Even the main bad guy, which sometimes just turns into... Bad guy, bad. So get him. <laughs> yes. Yeah, this was not that. But they do a good job justifying all of those various things. So I, uh, yeah, I have nothing, I, I have nothing but good things to say about that aspect of the story. Um, you know, some of the other aspects of like Jin's relationship with the people that he's br- trying to bring along for this crusade of his, like Yuna in particular, I think he is very manipulative towards her. Yes. Uh, you know, telling her to stick around fresh off her brother's death is pretty rough. But um, yeah, I don't know. He makes a lot of sacrifices and he expects other people to too. So I guess that's that. That was the point I was going to bring up. He doesn't ask anybody to do anything he wouldn't do himself, which every leader always is is telling people to, that they need stuff from them. But very seldom will they lead from the front. And that's what I think people said he wasn't the most interesting character and I would agree, but he... he uh, yeah, I mean, he's, he's a straight putt, but he's likable. Correct. And he at least, uh, like everybody else, he had his own shit where, you're right, he wasn't super in touch. Yes, he's breaking, I guess, uh, his oath as a samurai. He, not to get too far into it, but he let his family down and his father died because of him. Like, he's got his own demons that he's dealing with too, but he's trying to be better and he's trying to at least put forth the same effort that he's asking from other people and putting down sacrifice as well. So one other aspect of this game that we uh, explored 
<laughs> fairly in-depth actually, is the completely unannounced, released on a random afternoon co-op mode, uh, Legends, which is really fun. Uh, I don't know, I think I had low expectations for this given it was like not announced when they announced the game and just sort of decided to come out later. Yeah, I never uh, think anything of co-op or multiplayer modes that are tacked on to what are clearly single-player games. Um, right, game's not designed for it. No, so I looked at it, I'm like, I'm going to turn this on, I'm going to play one thing to say I did it, and then I'm going to move on. And then 40 hours later, I'm like, oh shit, that was fun. Um, yeah, basically you're, you get to pick from four different classes, your hunter, your ronin, samurai, and assassin, which has corollaries to different, you know, techniques and things that Jin had throughout the game. But, um, Mm -hmm. where the game was very focused in reality, uh, this is very much focused on like Japanese, like, uh, legend spirits. Yeah. Yeah. It was cool. They, they, they managed to keep it all grounded in in the main quest and they're like now we can just do whatever the hell we want this is a totally different thing and it, and it played really well yeah it, it really did <clears throat> and um it's i think it's worth noting that while the main game of ghost of tsushima is an anthology of stories where like you are going to a various quest for this story and then uh pursuing a myth about some armor that was hidden in this place for that story um Legends mode, the multiplayer mode, specifically delved into like, and now we're fighting demons. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. It didn't. It didn't pull any punches with that. Like everything in in the main game was grounded more or less in reality. This was just like, now you're entering the spirit realm and fucking up some spirit demons. The Onibaba. Yeah, the Onibaba. That's right. So, um, it's cool too how they uh, sort of had. It, it, they basically turned it into like a class based. Uh, I would say shooter, but it's not a shooter. It's a class-based open-world stealth action game, um, which, wow, meets, meets, meets. Uh, Here it is. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it kind of played out like a little bit. I don't even know what to describe it as. It's hard to describe, yeah. Maybe Borderlands a little bit? It's. I mean, it is the most perfectly that a game like Assassin's Creed has been converted into a multiplayer mode that I have seen um, in that you retain like pretty much all of the core mechanics and then they give each of the classes that you play like some sort of specific abilities that help them uh, kill more things or heal people or resurrect people or things like that and it's really focused on bringing you through um, first this story mode and then these survival um, games with you know, story mode with groups of two, survival mode with groups of four, and then raids with groups of four as well, I believe. Yep. And all along the way, you're increasing your power level, which functions sort of like the light level in Destiny or Destiny 2, if, if anyone's familiar. And you're, you know, all along the way, customizing your character with uh, equipment you unlock and items that raise your power level. Yep. Every time you beat a, a story mission on a certain level, you get pieces of loot and that loot will essentially up- upgrade your character which i thought would be boring and get old but i pretty much max leveled my guy i didn't get through <laughs> all the raids i got through several um turns out not everybody online is very good at playing this game and it is very frustrating <laughs> some of these raids are like an hour long and they require four players and they require four players to be very good at the game um, so I haven't had enough patience to get all the way through them, but it's not because I don't enjoy it. It's because I just need to find a good team to play with. You need a group. Yeah. yeah. You need a group of four people. And that's, that's tough for like a game that's not built as, you know, 
your your type of player that's going to buy Ghost of Tsushima is probably a person that enjoys single player games. And then to say like, hey, if you want to experience this part of the game, you need four friends who are also as into this as you are. It's a <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty pretty rough. Um, like we 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 maybe have one. Like if you and I devoted some time to it, we could fu- we could fill out half a team, and. I think we'd have to jump on a discord to find the rest of the people. <laughs> yeah, it, it definitely. I think the biggest gatekeeping on all this is the raids really require communication. So the, the main story missions, you could do all that without uh, too much communication. It's just two player co-op. But when you get to these raids at the end, which is like the ultimate end game for, for legends mode, it, if you don't have four people with mics on, which is hard on console, sometimes it's just, you're, it's not going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. That's very fair. Um, on the other hand, I like that they let you uh, dress up as uh, sort of the God of War Spartan uniform, or I got a Yarnum outfit for my Ronin from Bloodborne. Uh, that's <laughs> fun. There's some fun shit. Yeah. Yeah, it was a lot of tip in the hat to other Sony games, which I think Sony games do this a lot. I guess I didn't realize this before, but I've been, over the last couple of weeks, been playing uh, Days Gone, and there's just so much stuff in there from God of War, Horizon Zero Dawn, like all these other Sony games. Sony, uh, SIE likes to likes to put in uh, just little tips of the hat. Yeah. I love it. And I'm glad they did it. It, <clears throat> it made it sort of fun. Uh, and for someone who was trying to build out a Ronin and had nothing but shitty uniforms off the bat, all of a sudden when that Bloodborne one popped in, I was more incentivized to play that character. Yeah, I definitely <laughs> had the Kratos armor on my, uh, on my uh, uh, samurai, samurai for a yeah. bit. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, would I recommend somebody go out and buy this game just for Legends mode? I mean... Probably not. Probably not, but... To be honest, I enjoyed the shit out of it, but to be that's not what it was ever built at. It was just this like wonderful cherry on top that nobody ever expected or even thought was coming. Or like, asked for, yeah. Yeah, they're mm-hmm. like, hey, uh, also, we are just going to give this to you. Enjoy. And it mm-hmm. was, turned out to be great. I, I really hope... I'm almost certain there will be another Ghost of Tsushima game. This is the fastest selling uh, Sony franchise game ever, which just blows my mind. I don't know... I'm sure the pandemic had something to do with it. Everybody in, was it June <laughs> when it came out? Uh, July, yeah. Yeah, it was just like, fuck, I can't go outside. I need something to do. This will do. And Because uh, mm-hmm. I don't know how it would beat out things like God of War and things like that. But th- this, I guess, is a little more, we said it earlier, it's accessible. Yeah, that's, that, that's another thing is it's also a new franchise. I think people are, one, more interested in you know new ips because it doesn't have the baggage of like hey you need to have played all this other shit and i know god of war wasn't that it was specifically a reboot for that reason but it's nice to sort of get in on the ground floor of something and people people like that um they like like being invested in a long-standing franchise as well but you know i think there's something to be said for blazing a new trail and trying to bring as many people along as you can yeah but regardless, I think they'll make another one, and I really hope that they do include Legends mode again, and that it's even more fleshed out. I couldn't believe how fleshed out it was for just being a, a, an add-on. So if it's something that they intend to do next time, I think uh, I'm, I'm excited to see what they do with it. All right. Well, with that, um, why don't we try our best to summarize this game with a three-word review? Uh, all right, I will go first. My three-word review is A Generation Perfected. Uh, In many ways, the current console generation was defined by the ever-increasing prominence of open-world games. Uh, Ghost of Tsushima, for me, 
might just be another open world game, but in my opinion is probably the best one. I played Horizon Zero Dawn, The Assassin's Creed, Origins and Odyssey, Far Cry 2 through 4, you name it, you know, any game in this mold. But this beats them handily in world design characters and the feeling the player gets from exploring the world map. Uh, it did really well to blend in some influence of Breath of the Wild by focusing on aesthetics and exploration over a checklist of items to accomplish, and for me, that's why this was uh, a generation perfected for this type of open world game. Huge thumbs up from me. Definitely recommended. Cool. My three-word review is take notes, Ubisoft. Um, <laughs> along the same vein as Brian here, like I've played every open world game out there um, with the exception of Horizon Zero Dawn, which is on my list. But regardless, they all have things in common. I think they all kind of tie off of, at least lately, off of the Assassin's Creed Ubisoft um, model. And much like the theme of this game where they're throwing off the chains of tradition, this game throws off the chains of its tradition of, of open, open world games by taking everything that they learned from those games and making it into something way better. The fact that this game was made on seven-year-old hardware but manages to look better than some of the games I've already seen on PS5 is just absurd. Like, visually, it's stunning. The storytelling is beyond serviceable, I would say even pretty damn good. Um, the gameplay was amazing and just the way that they presented everything, the presentation, visually and, and, and through the UI and through everything else was just exceptional. And I think um, the way everything had meaning and nothing, there was nothing extra. Everything had a purpose and everything that had no purpose was, was removed. And I really think that open world games need to take page out of this book and if ubisoft wants to keep competing in this space uh they better learn from sucker punch because they're going to take over the market <laughs> amen yeah you just a real quick note on that um like everything thematically like tied together like even just little things like when you level up like your legend grows and like the little title cards ahead of every mission um just all perfectly tied into that like japanese uh samurai film aesthetic and that was so cool to me yeah, um, yeah. It, it, it really is just a, a, a very unified piece of work. But uh, on that note, we will close out our discussion on Ghost of Tsushima. For us here at Pixelated Playgrounds, I'm Brian Skersha. And I'm Clint Jones. Take care and keep on bucking tradition. I, uh, I, you know, we completely neglected to mention throughout the course of this that one of my favorite things in this game was um, upgrading your, your armor. Um, you know, you get like a cool new piece of armor and then you continue to upgrade it and it keeps looking more and more badass. And it frustrated me to no end while I was playing this game that you had to replace all the charms on each individual piece of armor you had. And then miraculously, when I loaded it up after Legends was announced, or, uh, released, they fixed that. You could have loadouts per armor set and my life was made much better. Nice. Yeah, I did find myself picking certain armor sets because I liked the way they looked better. And 
the cool thing that they do, so let's say you upgrade it all the way, but you're like, I really like the way it looked on level three. You could go back in and change it to look like it looked before. Mm hmm I like that too. Very much showing that they cared about... Aesthetics. Yes. The, everything in this game was... It didn't have to... It wasn't just enough that it was pretty. It had to be just perfect. Like, every bit of presentation was just so. These are the guys that when you go to their restaurant, they, it's... Yeah, they didn't just give you the best steak ever. It's it's plated and it looks like a swan for no apparent reason. Like they just nobody asked for this, but they just made it look exceptional. Every, every And they day. didn't have decorations from the wholesale tchotchke factory up on the wall. They had some like actual decor. Right. <laughs> yep. Yeah, this this game if nothing else was just It's a, a 5-star restaurant in the land of Applebee's. That should I mean, this is why we got to have not just three word reviews, <laughs> that's perfect. <laughs>